Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm glad. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. I'm just trying to kind of ramble to hold those tears back from, uh, from that video. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, thank you, Holly, for talking about Young Lives. Um, today, what we're doing, um, well, let me backtrack a little bit. So we're in this series called Disciples Making Disciples. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been primarily talking about who Jesus says we are first before he tells us ultimately what to do. And so we've been in this, this being week four. Week one, we talked about just that, our, our identity, who, who Jesus says we are. And after that week, uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through ultimately our activity. One of the things that we tend to preach and push and talk about here is that your identity determines your activity. And so at week two, we talked a little bit about us as worshipers of God, particularly or specifically in the context of Sunday mornings. Last week, we looked at who we are as a family and, and what we do and the fact that as a family, everybody has chores, everybody has a responsibility, everybody has something that they need to do in an effort to serve the body. And today, what we're going to be looking at is, is us as being sent um, another way of saying it is us as missionaries. And so if you want to open your Bible, or if you would like to load your Bible, uh, go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And as you load and open your Bibles and, and go that route, let me, let me kind of just talk a little bit about what we're doing today. Today we're having something called Mission Emphasis. Uh, mission Emphasis is where uh, what we want to do is expose a lot of our local partnerships to you so that we would provide you with an opportunity to serve alongside of us to dive deep in developing existing relationships that we have with organizations in our city, one of them being Young Lives uh, led by Holly Smith. And so we want to help expose these to not only get you involved, but we want to help to expose and reveal all of these things that we're doing as a church, not just because it's a part of our missional strategy, but because we believe so, we believe so heavily that the gospel affects change in the context of everyday life. And a lot of the ministries or a lot of the organizations that we have partnered with or are partnering with, with deal specifically with things in the everyday life. I think oftentimes uh, the ordinary gets a bad rap, but let me submit to you that in the ordinary is where God chooses to use people to do extraordinary things. And so while we have mission emphasis is to develop those relationships to get you on board or at the very least to, for you not to walk out of here asking, man, how do I be missional? How do I live my life missionally in the context of everyday rhythms? We want to present you with opportunities, but I also pray that God's word would also present you with conviction. And so we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, our verses, and then I'll dive into prayer. And then, uh, and then we're going to park for a while in verse 13. And so uh, this is Jesus, and he goes on to say, 
You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare or as we dive into this time of worship through your preached word, primarily I would ask that you would set me aside, Lord. That it wouldn't be, that I would merely be a tool, a vessel, and that ultimately it would be your Holy Spirit at work. Uh, Ultimately it would be your Holy Spirit speaking. Lord, I pray that as we look to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, that we would not only be compelled to change, but convicted to repent and ultimately transform. Father, I pray that this time would glorify you. I pray that this time would be a time where we evaluate um, our walk with you, that we would evaluate the daily rhythms that you have set before us and wonder, question, think through, Lord, are we giving you the glory or are we hiding it? So we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. So do you guys know what a missionary is? Right, oftentimes when we're talking about missionaries, um, we're often talking about people who are sent overseas to a specific culture or a specific country. We're talking about people who are even serving in international contexts. And in addition to that, we even think about people who travel across state lines domestically to go to a different culture, a different city, plant themselves in there, learn the culture, learn the people, learn the values, and ultimately become one of them. Go from missionary to local and hopefully local to native at some point. And so when we're talking about missionary, those tend to be the the pictures that we look at, right? Now, I'm not going to say that's wrong, but what I will say is that that's not only it. Missionary isn't just, or being a missionary isn't just someone who is sent overseas, international, or even domestically, but truthfully, when we look at the Word of God, what a missionary is, is someone who is sent, this is going to sound weird, someone who is sent to where they are, right? Someone who is sent to where they are. So wherever it is that you find yourself in, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but wherever it is that you find yourself, you are a missionary. If you find yourself, uh, man, as a spouse, you're a missionary in that home. If you are a teacher, you are a missionary in that school. If you are a student, you have been sent to that place. If you're anything from law enforcement to a professional, to a friend, to a brother, you have been sent specifically, not randomly, to where you find yourself. And because of that, in lieu of our definition, you are sent. You are a missionary. And that's not always the way we think about it. But what we're going to be looking at here today is that that's exactly what Jesus says. 
that wherever you are, you've been sent there. And it hasn't been random. It's been very purposeful and it's been very specific. Additionally, this ties into what we've been pushing for the past couple of months, that your identity determines your activity. And I want to I add a little bit more to that spin, that your identity determines your activity so that it would affect how others view you and ultimately view Christ. I think we can look at that phrase and say, right, your identity determines your activity. Got it. So it's who I am in Jesus affects how I am on Sundays. It affects how I am at community group. It affects how I pray before meals. But when it comes to being uh, behind closed doors, when it comes to the office, when it comes to being around other people, that might be something that we set aside. But I would, again, encourage and exhort you, even implore you, that that tagline, that identity determines activity, I would add to it by saying, it determines your activity so that it would affect how others view you and ultimately view Christ. You see, we believe so convictionally that the gospel causes change in the context of every day, in the ordinary. What you call ordinary, I believe so strongly that the gospel affects change there. I believe so strongly that the gospel affects change in the daily rhythms of your life and the things that you consider boring or the things that you consider mundane or the things that you consider to simply be another part of the day, I believe that the gospel affects change even in those. I believe that the gospel affects change in where you decide to live, the kind of house that you decide to buy, how you choose to raise your children, where your children are going to go to school, the types of values that you adopt, the kind of job that you accept, the school that you decide to attend. All of those things are impacted and affected directly by the gospel. Should you say you are a follower of Jesus? And as a follower of Jesus, you are not randomly, but specifically sent, right? So when you say, man, I'm going to choose UTRGV, you are sent specifically there. And it's not random. And so all of that, we look to the words of Jesus. Verse 13, right? And so kind of all, all that ramble, put it together and we're going to put some more meat on it. Maybe one might add some salt no pun intended. Here we go. So he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's, here's what I love about Jesus at the beginning of this as he rolls into verses 14 and 16. What I love so much about Jesus is that before he tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. Okay. Before he tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. And at the start of verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, being from the valley, everybody loves salt. If you don't believe me, you can go to Don Pepe's and order a botana, and that thing is like sodium-filled, and it's delicious, right? It's delicious. No one will knock it. And so in light of that, let me give you four purposes that salt serves. I'm not saying that these are the only purposes, but I'm going to ultimately apply these four to what we're talking about. And as I walk through each one, what I want you to do is kind of put in the back of your mind, okay, what is, 
how does this apply to me being salt? And so the first thing, one of the first purposes that salt serves as is specifically for preservation, right? So before refrigerators came in to be, right, before we got that, you know, deep freezer in the garage or maybe even that second refrigerator out there, before refrigerators came in to be, uh, there weren't any, right? Our students are like, what? Okay, there weren't any. And so what people used was salt. And so they would put salt specifically over things like meat so that it would not spoil or go rotten, so that it would be preserved so that they can use for later times, right? So salt serves as a preservative, just like it does over meat to keep it from spoiling, to keep it from going rotten. So too, the Christian serves as a preservative in a world that has been tainted by sin, distorted by sin, the Christian serves not just as a preservative, but ultimately the Christian serves as an agent of change and redemption in a culture that's constantly spiraling. Catch me on that? The Christian serves as salt. They serve as an agent of change and redemption in a culture that's constantly spiraling. The second thing that serves salt, uh, the second purpose uh, of salt, I should say, is, is for flavor. At some point, you knew we were kind of headed this way, right? If you like steaks, if you don't, sorry. Um, I mean, not really, but nevertheless, if you enjoy steak, everybody will always say, man, salt and pepper, that's all you need. Just, just sorry, Izzy. Salt and pepper, right? That's, that's all you really need, salt and pepper. Maybe you might use some grapeseed oil for a binder, but I'm getting nerdy. We're not going to go there, but you should. Nevertheless, you use salt over the steak. And it's not so much that the salt is Well, I should say it this way. You use salt over the steak for the purpose of exposing some of the flavors that come in the steak. What the salt is going to do is not only add that flavor, but the salt is is ultimately going to expose some of those juices, some of that flavor, and it enhances your steak-eating experience. I'm sure the same thing happens when you eat broccoli, but we're not talking about that. And so what we're doing when we add salt to that, right, we're exposing exposing, right? We're not just bringing flavor, but we're also exposing uh, its, its, its flavor. We're enhancing that experience, right? And so here's what I mean for Christians. As we live our lives in the everyday, Christians should have, and I know that's easier said than done, but Christians should have such a satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus that it ultimately exposes and reveals their relationship with him. And the third part, I'll I'll end right there, but the third part ties into flavor because the third thing that salt does is that it creates thirst, right? If you eat a lot of salty stuff, you get thirsty, right? That's pretty easy, but nevertheless, similarly to that of flavor, What salt is going to do is it's going to make you thirsty. How you live, if the gospel affects change, how you live matters. It matters because what can and maybe even should be happening is that how we live should lead others to thirst for Jesus. 
And I'll give you an example. One of the guys I've picked on him before, I'm not going to look at him, but his name is Ozzy. He is a CrossFit coach. One of the things he told me shortly after becoming a Christian, he said he was coaching one of the evening classes or the morning classes, I can't remember. Then he was just uh, he was just doing his thing. He was teaching technique, telling them what weight to use, whatever, all that stuff. And this one individual walks up to him and says, something is different about you. Something is different about you and I can't pin it. What is it? It's like a soft pitch to talk about what Jesus has done. But however it is he was living in the context of that CrossFit facility, facility led somebody to come to him and say, what's going on? I want that. Something is different and I want a piece of it. Does your life in the everyday lead others to thirst for Jesus? And some of you have had similar experiences to that of Ozzy, where someone's come up to you and says, man, something's going on. Something has changed. What is it about you? That's a soft pitch. Now, some of you might say, oh, I'm going to church now. And cool, maybe you got a little nervous, right? I'm going to church now, or I just do things differently. Nevertheless, it's an opportunity to share, man, this is... This is what Jesus has done in my life. Which leads us to the fourth thing that salt uh, does, or that salt is, I should say. So we've talked about salt as a preservative. We talked about it as a flavor or adding flavor. We've talked about it creating thirst. And here's the fourth thing about salt. It's common, right? I mean, everything has salt, right? I can go to your house right now and probably find the salt shaker. Everything has salt in it right? Here's why I think that's really good, and here's why I think that's encouraging. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, which means he chose what was common to reveal himself to those who don't know him. He didn't go after what you might consider the elite. He didn't go after He could have said, you are the gold of the earth. He could have said, man, you are the uranium. You are, uh, you know, whatever the metal from Captain America's shield is. Like, he didn't say, man, you're this kind of thing. What he said is, I'm going to go after the everyday, the common, and I'm going to reveal myself to them so that in turn they would reveal me to others. He chose what was common. And it gives us a few things, but before we get into that, let me, let me show you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29, and Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human, here it is, there's the culmination of all this, so that no human being, excuse me, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we're talking about being the salt of the earth, we're not talking about this special forces, super elite group of Christians. He is referring and speaking to those who follow him. He is speaking to the Christian. That means that each one of us here 
is a part of that statement that you are, I should say that if you follow and belong to Jesus, you are salt of the earth or the salt of the earth. So we've covered four things. That's a preservative or for preservation, for flavor, for thirst, and it's common. Very common, right? But let's look into the rest of what Jesus says in verse 13. He goes on to say, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's, here's what he is saying, right? When he says that if salt has lost its, its saltiness, what he is saying is that it's become diluted. It's other substances have been added to it or part of it has been removed so that it is not genuinely just salt. Now here's the kicker. That when salt becomes diluted for the Christian, it has been something that has been decisively done by that person. You don't just become, un, you don't just become diluted. You've chosen to become diluted. That's what he's getting at here. You have chosen to become diluted. And in so doing that, what you are saying is that you are stepping away from the message of Jesus Christ. What you are doing when you step away is that you are saying, I am ceasing to exist as an agent of change and redemption. That's what it means. Now, this happens different ways. Maybe you're really shy or even embarrassed at saying that you're a Christian at the office so you don't say anything about it. Yet you're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus and don't know anything about you. Maybe you're a student at school and people poke fun of you or people push you in light of what you believe, but yet you back off rather than engage. See, there are several occasions, and we can think of several of those, uh, several varieties of what that might look like. But when he is saying that, man, when we lose our saltiness, we are choosing to step away from the message of Jesus Christ. We are choosing to step away and stop being agents of change and redemption. And that might be some of you here, right? And it feels like there's a ton of weight being put on you. And we'll walk into that because I surely don't want to put weight on you. In fact, I want to take weight off of you. But it does lead us to two questions. The first one being, so where does saltiness then take place? Fine, I'm the salt of the earth. So then where does it take place? The second question is, if I am to be salty, what are the marks of someone who is salty? It sounds weird. But nevertheless, what are the marks of someone who is salty? So let's knock out the first question. First question is, uh, where does being salty take place? All right, you ready? Here we go. Being salty takes place where you're at. Being salty takes place where you're at, right? We've got college students. We have young professionals. We have business owners. We have moms. We have dads. We have housewives. We have house husbands. We have all these variety of things. Where you're at is where saltiness is going to take place, Okay? So now none of us have an excuse. Sweet. We're all on the same page. In addition to that, this is a two-part answer. So being salty takes place exactly where you're at and, that's a capital, capitalized A-N-D, and it is where hostility can take place. Or it is where hostility will take place. Years ago, and this is just the first question that popped in my mind, one of, the, one of our guys, he, he serves in the band. He's now helping out with production. I don't want to say his name, but he, uh, 
He was involved in certain illegal activity, right? And so Jesus rescues him, changes his heart, changes his lifestyle. And then he goes back this one night, and he's hanging out with those group of friends. And the group of friends ask him if he's going to participate in this activity. To which he looks up, if I remember the story correctly, he looks up and he says, man, I just want to let you know, I love Jesus now, so, so no thank you. And that no thank you led to some of the greatest hostility he's ever experienced. Because all of a sudden, that no thank you led them to believe, so you're better than us? So you can't do this anymore because you're such high on your morality cliff? because we don't have mountains in the valley, right? So you're high on morality. So you think you're better than us because of, because of this Jesus. All homeboy said was no thank you. Where you're at is where the saltiness is going to take place and hostility will begin. And hostility doesn't always have to be something radical, but it could be something in light of a response such as no thank you. Right? And some of you, by, by the nods of your head, have experienced some of that. Right? And so sometimes you, you want to push back against that because, man, not only do you not like confrontation, you want to be liked. Right? But where you're at is specifically where God has called you to. And that's where the saltiness takes place. The second question was, so then what are the marks of someone who is salty? Because we're going to drop the ball. So what are the marks of someone who is salty? When we were in Ephesians last year, we covered this in chapter 3. But ultimately, the marks of someone who is salty is someone who pursues holiness. It's the believer who pursues holiness. Now, what I mean by holiness is not that you pursue perfection because you're going to drop the ball, but that you pursue progression. And the way you pursue progression is by continual, habitual confession and repentance of sin. Confession and repentance of sin is what will help us, enable us to pursue humility for a couple of reasons, all right? When we confess, I said this, I think, last week. When we're confessing our sin, we are agreeing with the charges that have been brought before us. When we repent of our sin, it is where we are turning away from our sin, placing our trust in Jesus and now changing, right? Oftentimes, I think when we're talking about confession and repentance, we talk too much about make sure you confess your sins, make sure that you repent, just kind of do away with them, but there isn't necessarily change. We don't talk much about change. When we're looking at confession and repentance systematically, that's how it works. If it's not happening, then it's not confession or repentance, There is change that happens when we confess and when we repent. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as the salt of the earth, when we're looking at confession and repentance, man, we are continually doing it. We are continually pursuing it, right? And as Christians, we are leaning, leaning into the grace of God. We're constantly leaning into the grace of God. Now, let me talk a little bit about grace. 
You might have heard that word thrown around. Maybe I haven't defined it in a while. Grace is undeserving favor, that you receive undeserving favor from a perfect God. Now, some of you will treat grace merely as right and wrong, and it's something Jesus has to give, right? That's how it's done. In fact, even in Christian circles or in church environments, we're constantly saying, hey, give me grace. Give me grace, bro. Give me grace. Hey, I'll give you grace. I'll extend grace. You, you, you drop the ball, but grace, bro. Grace. Grace is costly. It costs Jesus his life. And when you constantly look at grace as simply right and wrong, and this is something that God has to do, you don't understand grace. And if you don't understand grace, then you have an immature or even absent understanding of who Jesus is. Let's look to Romans chapter 6. Everybody's like, oh no, he's going to Romans. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Some of you abuse grace and make it cheap because you just think that's what God should do. But there is no change in your life, which means there is no confession, there is no repentance, there is no transformation, which leads us to believe that you don't understand grace. Because if we were serious about grace, that means that we have a serious understanding of what our sin does. And our sin puts us in direct opposition to God. It's what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. Our sin puts us in opposition to God. And when he extends his grace to you, it is undeserving favor. That means that as you continue to sin against him, he continues to pour his love onto you, his forgiveness onto you, because that grace that he's pouring into you cost him really, really good money. It cost him his own blood. And so let's be a people that are marked by grace because of our deepest need for Jesus, not because it's simply what he has to do. If that's where you land, Friend, you don't understand grace. And you don't understand the work of Jesus on the cross. All of that culminates to us as salt of the earth. Then he goes on, and he goes on to, in verse 14, he goes on to say, So you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's what he's saying. Not only are we salt of the earth, not only are we agents of change and redemption, but we are also the light of the world. It's pretty heavy if you think about it. But let me just say this and then I'll explain it. You're not the light. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. In the mornings, this always happens to, uh, to me as I take my son to school. Uh, in the mornings, the valley sun comes up, and it is ridiculously bright, right? It is super bright. 
It's super powerful. It blinds my son. It's hilarious because uh, I'm the one that's driving. We'll walk out of the house and he's like, ah! you know, he's like tripping out because his room's the darkest. And, uh, and so, so the, the valley sun is ridiculously bright. We could all agree to that, right? But then when the sun goes down and the moon comes up, the moon is not necessarily emitting its own light. What the moon is doing is reflecting the light of the sun. That's what gives us illumination, right? Now, you tracking with me? When he says that you are the light of the world, what he is saying is that you are a reflection of the light. You are a reflection of Jesus by how you live. That's what he is saying in verses 14 to 16. Because if we left it up to say, oh, I am the light of the world. No, your works do not save. You do not save. Only Jesus saves. And our responsibility, because we are the salt, because we have been called by him, because we have a relationship with him, what we are supposed to do is reflect the goodness and graciousness of Jesus in the context of the everyday life in the context of the everyday life, right? What Jesus is saying in this section is that as Christians, when we pursue holiness, where God has us acting as agents of change and redemption, we are reflecting the light of Jesus by how we live. Now check it. This is immensely countercultural. This is, in fact, even controversial because you and I live in a culture, you and I live in a time where it's all about you. You can do it. You've earned it. You've made it. Just go get it. It's all about you. Billboards, commercials, uh, social media, and marketing, millions upon millions of dollars are poured into these avenues to preach that it's all about you. Yet what he is saying here is completely controversial and countercultural to the day in which we live. What he is saying is that everyone else is going to be marked by uh, social media and marketing and by doing it, yet for the life of the Christian, it is marked by it being about Jesus. That is the life of the Christian. That rather than reflecting what I've earned, I am reflecting what I have been given. That I am reflecting who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I think that's why it's so incredible when we have things like today with mission emphasis, right? Because it means that we get to participate in some daily rhythms. We get to participate in some weekly rhythms. In addition to what we're already doing, we get to participate in some daily or weekly rhythms to be a reflection of the light. That means that who we are and what we do are merely a reflection of what Jesus has already done. And so when we're looking at mission emphasis and organizations and, and various other ways to serve our city, there, there, there are tons of them. When we're looking at those avenues, we are looking at them for the purpose of reflecting the light. We are looking at them for the purpose of making much of Jesus. You guys tracking with me on that? The good news here, and so let me, let me transition a little bit. With all that being said, cool. Let me, let me give you some, some reality in all of this and, and hopefully some encouragement. 
The reality is, when we're talking about being the salt of the earth, when we're talking about being the light of the world, the reality is that no one, including myself, no one in this room is batting a thousand. None of us are batting a thousand. None of us are without sin this week or today for that matter. None of us are without sin, right? And so my goal in preaching about being the salt and the light isn't to put weight on you. Like, oh my gosh, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. I'm I'm not trying to put weight on you. In fact, I'm trying to take weight off of you. Because here's the good news. As you reflect on your week in your daily rhythms, and you know where you've dropped the ball, you know where you've sinned against God and sinned against others, you, you know that. I don't know your life, I don't know what you've done, but you, you know that jazz, right? Don't leave here today without confessing and repenting of your sin. Because when you do, here's, here's, here's the encouragement, all right? Listen up. Because when you do, this can sound weird, when you do, God isn't going to be surprised. You're not going to throw him for a loop when you confess your sin. He's not going to say, what? You're kidding me. Again? You did this all over? He's, you're not going to throw him for a loop, y'all. He's not going to be surprised by it. Now, why that's an encouragement is because it's exactly why he died for you. It's exactly why he did what he did. You see, our life isn't marked by behavior. It's marked by his obedience. And because it's marked by his obedience, we can look to what he's done. And that is that he lived the life that you and I cannot live, that he died the death that you and I deserve to die, and extends the grace that only he can extend. Okay? <clears throat> As we are sent into the context of everyday life, we are reflecting the glory of God. It's why we exist, and it's why we've been sent. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, Lord, my prayer, similar to that of the beginning, my prayer is, man, that we would genuinely evaluate our relationship with you. That we would do that today. That we would do that now. That we would ask ourselves and others tough questions. Are we one way on Sundays and community groups and in Christian circles? And are we completely different when we're behind closed doors alone? Are we completely different when we're not in church circles? Are we completely different when we are doing, I guess, involved in our daily rhythms? Lord, I pray that we would ask ourselves those tough questions. I pray that we would look to what you've called us to. I pray that we would evaluate, or not evaluate, but that we would look at the fact that we are sent. 
that part of the Christian life is that we are sent. Not a special group of Christians, not just this pocket of the elite, but all of us are sent, not randomly, but specifically, and that we would look to you, not just for your grace, but so that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit. And that as we sit here, we would confess and repent of our sin. Lord, you're not going to be surprised by what we're going to put. If we, we confess this to one another, it might be a different story. But right now, as we confess and repent of our sin, you're not going to be surprised by any of it. Any of it. Because in that moment where you meet us in our need, Lord, you say this is exactly why Jesus came to die for the sinner. So we, may we be a church that is marked as salt. May we be, excuse me, a people that is marked by salt. May we be a people that is marked by grace. And because we are marked as salt and grace, we point everything, everything to your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we continue in our time and as we walk through tithes and offerings, Lord, this is where this is where we give you our stuff. And we give you our stuff for several reasons. We give, we give you, um, we sacrificially and generously give so that your mission and kingdom would be furthered, so that it would be a testimony to the work that you have done and are doing in our lives, and so that we would continue moving forward as the salt of the earth. And we look to the example of your son Jesus who gave ridiculously generous, gener- who gave ridiculously generously to us by giving his life on the cross. And as we walk into communion in just a few moments, that's where we give you our sin. That's where you meet us where we're at and do only what you can do and that is pardon us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.